Welcome to the Compressed FM podcast, a podcast all about web design and development with a little bit of zest. My name is Amy Dutton. I am the director of design at Zeal. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Brad Garropy. Hey, I'm Brad Garropy. I work at Atlassian on the Trello web platform. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compressed. Today, we have two fabulous sponsors with Hashnode and Daily.dev. Hashnode is a wonderful blogging platform that not only makes it easy to get a blog up and running quickly, but has a wonderful community that will get more eyeballs on your work faster, helping you grow your own community. And daily.dev is a browser extension that will help you stay up to date on all the latest and greatest news within the tech industry. It's very easy to install and recommendations are tailored specifically to you. So more from each of these sponsors later in the show. Awesome. And we have a very special guest today. Rizelle is from GitHub. She's a developer advocate there. Yep. Hello. Rizelle, tell us about the work that you're doing and that kind of thing, what you've been up to. So, like I said, my name is Rizal Scarlett. I am a junior developer advocate at GitHub. I've been here for like just a little over a year, like a year and some days. And what I've mostly been focused on, at least when I first started at GitHub, it was like empowering early career developers to get into open source. But now I've started to include some other things like advocating for GitHub Copilot and GitHub Actions and GitHub Codespaces, some of the other GitHub features that are newer to the platform and showing people how they can like use it to their best ability. Awesome. I have been blown away by GitHub Copilot. Like it's Me too. crazy. <laughs> Me too. Um, My favorite part is that I can understand like other spoken languages. So like I've written comments in like Spanish or I, I did a, like a stream with someone where they were writing comments in German and it was able to like understand that and like write the code for it. I thought that was wild. Oh, that is crazy. Yeah, we <laughs> did insane. an episode where James and I just kind of had a casual conversation. I think that was the week that GitHub started charging for it. And I was like, there was like a month left before they started charging. And I was like, well, I've got to try it now. And now there's no way I can turn it off. <laughs> it's like, it's so good. Yeah, I've become dependent on it. Yeah, Yeah. now do you usually write comments first and then have it suggest the code? Or do you just like let it suggest the code? I write comments first because I think I get better results when I write comments. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I love it. I usually just let it suggest and it's crazy to me half the time like, oh, no need to go to Stack Overflow. This is perfect. (laughs) Right? I've used it to write blog posts. Because I was like, not really sure what I want to say for this next line. And I'm writing it in Markdown. So I was like, let me just turn on Copilot. And it was like, how about you say this? I'm like, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't thought about that. That's awesome. That's crazy. That's actually the reason why I turned it off. Because it was like auto-completing my lines when it comes to blog posts. I'm like, that's not my voice, though. I get you. I get you. I didn't have it on for everything. It was just like three sentences. I was like, I don't know how I want to say this. But yeah, sometimes I'm like, "Mm, that's not what I want to do, co-pilot. But thanks for trying. (laughs) I do really like that it gives you like fine grained controls over what languages it auto completes. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you can also change your editor settings to kind of show how it actually shows up. So it's maybe a little bit less distracting or a little bit more right in front of your face. I think that is what makes usability of it like really, really good. 
So we have a comment here from Pablo. So he's asking, can you guys explain a little bit how Copilot works? And then if you have to install this extension to VS Code. Yeah, I can take a stab at it. So essentially, for anybody listening and that doesn't know what GitHub Copilot is, it's essentially like autocomplete for your code, similar to like when you're using Gmail or Google Docs and then you see like the autocomplete for Smart Compose. And yes, well, right now it's a paid feature if you're not a student and like a consistent or core maintainer of an open source project, you will have to pay. But once you do have access, you can install the extension on VS Code, on JetBrains, and you can use it on NeoVim too, which is pretty cool. And yeah, once you start writing code or write a few comments, you'll start seeing it suggest different lines of code for you. They have a separate extension too called Copilot Labs, which enables you to translate like code snippets from one programming language to another. So if you like wrote a code snippet in JavaScript, you can translate it in Python. And there's also like an explain feature on it where it'll tell you step-by-step what the code is doing. I think I covered everything. It's powered by OpenAI Codex, which are like the same people that do Dolly. And yeah, that's all the information. I want to go back to something you said because I didn't know this. You said it was a paid feature. It just went paid not too long ago. The open beta was free, which was a lot of fun. Everybody was getting their use out of it. But I didn't know that open source maintainers get Copilot licenses for free. Can you talk more about how to apply for that and uh, you know what you kind of got to do to make that happen? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have control over this piece too much. But I know that when it first came out, select open source maintainers did get like automatic access without applying. I'm not sure how to apply. I'll have to get back to you because I have seen like requests come in to say like, hey, I'm an open source maintainer of this really big project. But I'll have to get back to you because I don't know how they were able to submit those requests. <laughs> That's awesome, though. It's good to see that there's enough issues in funding open source in general, but it's good to see at least GitHub and by extension, Microsoft helping out the open source developers in little ways like this, like at least use the free tools in order to make your stuff that the world runs on. That's great. Yes. Yeah, we have to. They're the ones that are helping us keep GitHub alive. So, of course, we got to give back. I love that. I know when Microsoft bought out GitHub, everybody's kind of like, Ugh. I don't know how I feel about that. But I feel like it's just gotten better. Just yeah. one thing after the other. So another service that you mentioned was uh, Code Spaces. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? What it is and how people can use it? Yeah, yeah, I can. So Code Spaces is essentially VS Code, but in your browser. And what it's doing is it's running on like containers and stuff like that, where you can run it on containers. That way you can code from anywhere. So let's say like you forgot your laptop at home and now you're on a different computer. You can easily open up the branch or repository you were on and continue working. Or if you were like coding on your iPad on a plane, you could easily do that as well. And then the other benefit of code spaces is like if you have like a company project or an open source project, you can like have a consistent environment of like everything you want. Like let's say you want certain extensions installed for people automatically, or you want like everything to be up and running on the go rather than people taking the time to do that like local environment set up that I don't know about other developers, but I hate it. <laughs> so <laughs> you can start coding right away. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I rambled. 
<laughs> no, I have so many node modules folders on my computer. <laughs> All of the things. It's crazy. This is something I think that's really worth diving into because I think I judge companies quite a bit when it comes to like time to first commit or time to getting your local development environment up and running. And Codespaces literally brings that down to milliseconds or hundreds of milliseconds. One of the things that super impressed me about Codespaces was somehow it picked up my local VS Code settings and mimicked that in the browser. So without me configuring anything, my editor looked exactly the same. That's awesome. How does it do that? I don't know. (laughs) You must have had like settings sync on. That's great because I have this issue where I have to keep putting the settings back. (laughs) I don't know. Like I'll go into my code spaces. I'm like, oh, I want to see the theme that I like. And it would Mm -hmm. always go away. So it's awesome that it was able to work for you without you like realizing I never thought about that. For some reason, I thought it was like had access to my local file system to see my, you know, settings file. And I was like, how is that doing that? But you're right. (laughs) Settings is synced through your Microsoft account or your GitHub account or something. So yes, that makes sense, man. (laughs) And it's right at home in the browser. And the other thing that just blows me away is it's not just the editing piece. It's not just the text editor. You have a full container running behind it. So you can run your projects, connect to your databases have local web servers running. It is really a full development environment. Yes. Yeah. So I haven't used code spaces. I don't think I've used it at all. Do you just open it and everything's running or do you have to like wait for it to install the node packages and make sure that you have the configuration right on the back end? How does all that work? So hopefully I can answer this in a smooth way, but basically (laughs) whoever initially made the project, they have to like set up a Docker file and like, okay. So it's all done through Docker. Yeah. And that way it can be like automatically set up once you open it. it. If you don't do that, it'll just be all the files. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Although I will say my experience in it is I'd never run code spaces on this one particular repository of mine. And when I opened code spaces, I didn't have to configure anything. It was like it knew that it was a node project. So it basically just opened VS Code, ran NPM install. And your only wait time essentially was like your package install. The Docker container came up immediately and then it went to work on like, we know this is node. We know we have to install it. We know we have to run like NPM start or something like that. So it has a lot of smarts built in, even without all that Docker stuff, which is, in my opinion, pretty tough to get through. Yeah, it can be. It can be. And that's awesome that that happened for you. I will say I haven't even used Visual Studio Code since I've started using Code Spaces. Because I'm like, this one is way more convenient, so much easier. I don't even have to like clone the project or anything. I'm just like, I'm just going to open it up right here. That's awesome. Now, one of the features that was really cool in VS Code was like live share. Can you do live sharing and pair programming through Code Spaces the same way you would do it on your local? Yes, you can. I actually did it the other day. I live shared with two people and one person was able to open it up in Code Spaces and another person said they prefer to do it in VS Code. So you're still able to live share and either platform that they choose still works. I love that part. Another thing I like is that you can 
So this is just something I've been thinking about is like being able to run workshops better. So I, in the past, done a lot of like teaching people like the basics of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, like people who don't know how to code at all. But it takes forever for them to clone the repo and then they get freaked out because my theme looks different than theirs. So they're like, oh, mine is a different color <laughs> than yours. Like, what's going on? And I think Code Spaces has been super helpful in being able to, like, have those extensions hold up right away and have them not be able to, like, have to clone it and fork it and do all that other stuff. That is for sure. Consistency among development environments is a huge time saver. No more it works on my machine or anything like that. Yeah. We've got a few comments. So Eric in the chat is saying code spaces also saves a huge amount of battery power since it's in the cloud doing the heavy lifting, which is awesome. And then he also said there's a default canned code space with node support. And what it will do is it'll try and auto install everything for you. And he also will include a link. He's made his own blog and videos on code spaces. So we'll be sure to share that out. Now I think the question is at scale, I wonder if, paying for code spaces for your org versus buying supercharged M1, you know, Mm. laptops for everybody is more affordable, right? Because at the end of the day, you don't have to have a beefy laptop. If all your compute is running in the cloud, it's probably more affordable at the end of the day. That's a good point. I would assume so. Yeah. Somebody do a case study. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure GitHub will come out with more soon, too, because they've been doing like case studies on Copilot and how it's made like developers more happy and more productive. So hope to see that that soon as well. And I mean, obviously, it must be doing something good, because from what I've heard, most of the company is now running on code spaces like GitHub internal development is running on code spaces. So yes, (laughs) signs point to yes. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I wanted to highlight one more thing. There's a question asked, and I think, Brad, you already got it in the chat. But Pablo asked, so you can clone your theme settings, font style, and all that on code spaces. That's yeah, you can, but settings sync. Yeah. Cool. Perfect. Yeah, it happened automatically for me. I didn't even have to do anything. I just had that feature turned on, and it just worked. So really impressive. It's really awesome. Love it. So, Rizelle, I know you talked a lot about kind of beforehand about teaching and learning in public. So how does all of this translate with what you're doing? I know you said open source is really important to you. Where would you recommend somebody get started? In open source or in teaching and learning? Sorry. (laughs) Love it. Sorry. I put two questions together, but all of it. Cool. Okay, so I can start with open source since that's more on my mind right now. So Hacktoberfest is coming up and that is in October. What day is it? September 30th. So that's tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that is like probably one of the easiest and best ways to get started. Hacktoberfest is like an annual event that happens every October where maintainers and other contributors kind of encourage everyone to contribute to open source and give back to the open source community. Maintainers will often label their issues as good first issues, which means like, hey, this is like a task that someone with very little experience within my project could tackle. So that's like one thing I would do. I would go on hacktoberfest.com and like register and then on top of that it's just like searching for those good first issues searching for projects that maybe you use every day and they're open source why not give back to them or going ahead and going on like different websites like firsttimersonly.com 
And to me, that's the way to get started is find an issue, maybe join the chat that they have. Like each project should have a Discord or a discussion board or a Slack or something like that. I know one barrier for me before contributing is I felt like I didn't really know anybody. And like, I was like, who are these people? Are they going to laugh at my pull request? So introducing myself to the chat and getting a feel of who the people were made me feel more comfortable. And I was able to make my first contribution. And if you need help, feel free to like hit me up because I've done a couple streams helping people make their first contributions. And then teaching and learning in public. I kind of started teaching when I helped to run this organization called G-Code. And G-Code is like an organization that teaches women of color and non-binary people of color to code. I made the curriculum and I kind of had no clue what I was doing at first, (laughs) but it taught me about breaking down things to people. And it actually helped me to remember a lot of concepts that I had forgotten about because I wasn't really like doing HTML and CSS and like vanilla JavaScript anymore. So just getting certain questions that people had, like, why is it called the div? I'm like, hmm, that really (laughs) made me start thinking. It's just something I just accepted for what it was. Or like people are like, why are the hyperlinks blue? So it had me like doing more deep dives. And then that kind of made me think that I wanted to be a developer advocate because I'm like, I still like coding, but I love like teaching and getting a chance, like getting a chance to work as a junior developer advocate has really opened me up to the greatness of learning in public because it's brought me more opportunities and helped me to learn and reflect even more. And for people to get started, I'm just like, write about what you learn or make a video about what you learn. And don't worry about what other people say, because it's going to be helpful to somebody. If it's helpful to absolutely nobody, it's helpful to yourself. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like they say, like, there's so much going on in your head. And the more you think, think, think your head just get fills up and you have to write or make a video or something like that or teach it to get it out of your head and cement it. So it will always help yourself first. And then yes, absolutely. You're kind of paving the way for other people who like your teaching style or like what you have to say behind you. Yeah, exactly. We had Brian Douglas on the podcast. Actually, I should break up real quick. episode. (laughs) Do you guys work together? Because it feels like with what you were saying, you might cross paths at, at work. Okay, so he doesn't work at GitHub anymore, but he was oh. my manager. He was the person that hired me. Gotcha. Uh, that's fun. <laughs> so Brian was our first guest ever on our oh. podcast. I mean, we'd done some crossovers, but the first time we did like a true interview episode. But anyways, he was talking about open source and really how learning in public and contributing and open source can be one and the same. And just how as a junior coming in, that's one of the best places to learn, which really surprised me. I think that may have been the first time that I truly heard that because I know as, or I'm assuming as a beginner, contributing to open source would be kind of scary because you're coming into a project where you have people that are very well experienced or trying to maintain a code base and expect it to be done a certain way and trying to figure out what can I contribute and like, what do I have (laughs) to actually contribute to this project? And sometimes the process can be a little scary the first time that you do it. 
Yeah, I agree. It was very scary for me. Like, it took me years to find a way to do it because I'm just looking at the code base and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on in here. I don't know what they want me to do. But Brian's project open source is the first mm-hmm. project that I contributed to. And that like helped break it down for me. And I agree with him that it's good for juniors to do that because you'll get more exposure to how other companies are doing things and how to improve your collaboration skills as a developer. It's like good padding for your resume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you had mentioned looking for issues that are tagged as a good first issue. And I remember asking him this question. He said that a good first issue will also have the answer in it. So a lot of times the contributor or the maintainer will know what needs to be done, but they might not have a chance to implement it. So if they can at least write out the implementation and tag it, then somebody else can come in and say, oh, I can do this. You've already given me the answer. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's what cool. he does. He's a good maintainer. He'll be like, <laughs> hey, y'all, this line is where this issue is happening. Go ahead and change it. And you're like, oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> that's awesome. Now, Brad, you have several open source projects Ooh. that you maintain, right? Yeah, I do a terrible job of maintaining issues, <laughs> I will say. They all have the Hacktoberfest label on them. But really, I maintain like my backlog in my kind of personal to-do list. So I'm not necessarily looking for help actively. But a lot of what I get are like issues or feature requests. And then I'll work with those folks to say like, hey, do you want to make a pull request? I'll totally help you out. Or, you know, do you want to help me test it? And I think one important aspect of open source code as well is like properly accrediting anybody who contributes to the Mm. repository. So something that kind of goes hand in hand with like open source or Hacktoberfest is also this library called All Contributors. Mm. And it's just like a super good way to recognize people who contribute in any way shape or form to your repos to your projects and so they get their face actually put right on the readme so that like they could be acknowledged for testing documentation bugs anything any kind of contribution that's awesome wait i've never heard of that library that's how people are getting the images of all their contributors within their readme yes wow. exactly yes okay. and so it it works kind of like a bot on GitHub. So you install all contributors into your project. You kind of stub out a section in your readme that this is where they go. And then on GitHub, you can be like at all contributors bot, add so-and-so for whatever they did in kind of natural language. And it processes it. And then it like updates your repository with their face. It's pretty cool. Wow, today I learned about this. I did not know that's how people, I was like, hmm, maybe they made a GitHub action or they're doing it manually. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Another thing I want to call out about Hacktoberfest is that it's not just about like you contributing to other people's projects. A lot of times that is a barrier for entry. Another way to do Hacktoberfest is contribute to your own projects. Mm-hmm. The idea is like, you grow the open source community. And so it doesn't mean like you have to help other people grow their open source. You can use it as a good excuse to like make the library you've always wanted to make, update the thing that you always wanted to update and all that kind of stuff. It all counts. That's a good point and a good call out. And it also reminded me of one other thing is that a lot of times people think of code contributions as the only contribution. But I think this year Hacktoberfest is trying to promote other contributions as well, like whether it's design or project management or like technical writing. So if you're listening and you're like, I'm not a developer, but I want to be part of it, you still can't. That's a fantastic call. When I filled out the application the other day, it asked me, am I a coder or a non-coder? And how did I plan on contributing, whether it was design or 
because you have all these libraries that need marketing pages or documentation yeah. around that. And it's a great mm. way to contribute. Yeah. Another thing that maintainers probably need the most help with is like just knocking down issues. If things are no longer an issue or an yep. issue needs clarification or attention, help them bring that countdown and they're just going to have such a weight off their shoulders. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm going to do a shameless plug here. We also have the compressed FM repo that is open source and you can contribute to that. So I've marked it for Hacktoberfest. I've tried to clean up some of the issues. But we would love help. We have a healthy backlog right now, for 40 issues. <laughs> oh, wow. That we could use some help with. So just different feature requests and things like that. I'm happy to help. Awesome. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about Hashnode. So Hashnode makes it easy to start a blog in seconds on your own custom domain for free. It's fully optimized for developers and supports writing in Markdown, rich embeds, publishing from a GitHub repository, syntax highlighting, and edge caching with Next.js blogs deployed on Vercel. On top of this, your article gets instant readership from the growing community. James and I have talked before on the podcast about how valuable creating content is and how developing an online presence really does give you respect and credibility in the tech space. And really, there's no better way to do that than through Hashnode. So be sure to go to Hashnode.com and join the community. Special thanks to Hashnode for being a Compressed FM sponsor. This was a while back at the very beginning that somebody had asked a question and I told them I would come back. So this person asked, can you guys suggest books for backend Node.js development? Do you guys have any recommendations? I'm going to have to think. Well, I think while you're thinking, I think this does tie in because there's also opportunities when you're talking about contributing to open source to look for projects where you can contribute to the back end. There's a lot of knowledge exchange that happens when you have a mentor relationship and a, a maintainer that's willing to help and coach you through the code that you're writing. So there are sometimes more non-traditional ways of learning than just books. Yeah, I would say I don't read that. <laughs> I don't, I, I hate to admit this, but I don't read that many software engineering <laughs> I yeah, usually really learned by like doing the only like JavaScript book I read is like Eloquent JavaScript that mm, kind of helps me, but one. that's not necessarily like Node.js. So. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I am not like a book reader. Well, I, I read other books, but I don't I don't learn programming from reading books. I learn yeah. programming from typically like watching videos. I personally love Scott Talinsky and love loved tutorials. Mm -hmm. He's got some really good like how to build a backend API type stuff. That's super helpful. And honestly, there's a ton of stuff on YouTube. If you look up like Node, Express, REST API, that will get you to where you need to go. Yeah, I would agree. I watch a lot of videos. I think there's somebody named Maximilian and he makes like Udemy videos. I learned like Node.js from that. But <laughs> I would also say, in addition to learning Node.js or alongside learning Node.js, you could look at serverless functions or cloud right. functions or whatever you want to call them instead of having to like create this entire Node.js Express application that is long running that you have to pay for a server for all this time. You could write a serverless function that you only pay for the couple hundred milliseconds that, that it's invoked each time. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. so you get rid of a lot of infrastructure and overhead when it comes to like actually hosting it somewhere. And it makes you focus on just like, okay, I have a request and a response. What do I do in the middle? And you don't have to worry about the rest of it. Yep. 
Drew's front-end masters has some great stuff, both on writing serverless functions and Node.js stuff. Maybe Egghead, too. Oh, yeah, that's a great one to call out. And then this is also kind of another <laughs> shameless self-promotion. So my apologies, because we're not even to the picks and plugs. But I am working on a course called Learn with Redwood. So if you've heard Ooh. of Redwood JS, I'm actually reworking the landing page, but you can at least sign up for updates. But the cool thing about Redwood is that it's a full stack JavaScript framework. Yeah, we have Anthony in the chat. He said Redwood. I've never heard of that. He's joking. He's a core contributor, and we've actually had him on the podcast talking about Redwood. But Redwood is a great way to get involved with the backend, and it provides a lot of generators and code that will help you almost set up boilerplate kind of guardrails to be able to write backend pieces and write serverless functions. So yeah, yeah, and it's a great crew over there. Their documentation is fantastic if you're wanting to look at that and not just the material that I'm releasing, but I'll include links to both of those. Yeah, I've yet to try out Redwood, but I've heard a lot of good things about it from Anthony. Yes, I've really enjoyed it. So we got a couple of questions here. I'm going to get this one first because I feel like it segues from what we're already talking about, but does Node.js backend development have a job market? I can speak to that specifically. When I was at Magnolia JS, I met a recruiter, Taylor, who's just absolutely fantastic. But he was saying, kind of my takeaway quote from the event was, React developers are a dime a dozen, but if you really want to be competitive in that space to be able to learn Node.js and backend development. So there's definitely a job market there. I was just going to say, yeah, there is. I think that was like my second job as a Node.js. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say you got to learn both pieces to be super valuable. Mm, you got to learn yeah. the front end and the back end. Yeah, I would yeah. also say, though, any like large companies is probably not going to be running like node servers. They are probably going to be going that serverless type route at this point. That's true. That's but good. it's typically it's Node.js environment. So it's all the same. I'll try and find a link to this. But someone that works at Liberty Mutual talking about how they run everything off thousands of serverless functions she was interviewed on the syntax podcast and i was like what (laughs) like thousands of serverless functions yeah i'll find the link and i'll share it so but anthony also said no js is still one of the single most useful pieces of tech you'll ever learn agree the other question that we got was what do you guys think about astro I love Astro. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm glad we brought this up because I've been trying to decide if I should migrate my site over to Astro. Right now it's on Next.js and Sanity, which I love, but I really want to bring the content into Markdown files. So I've been looking at moving it to SvelteKit, but it's like, you know, that meme where you have the guy walking down the street with the girl and he's like, and then you'll find keep ways. Yes, yeah. that's how I feel about Astro right now. <laughs> I love it. Well, okay. I haven't gotten a chance to use it that much. I've used it maybe like for two little small projects, but it took me really, really like quick to do it. Like I did like a couple demos, one in Next.js, one in Astro and another in React. And it was way faster in Astro. I love the experience overall. Yeah, it's great. And then the documentation is good. I contributed to the documentation. Nice. The crew is awesome. Like it's good. (laughs) That's awesome. I reached out to one of their contributors to come on the podcast. So hopefully he'll be on the next month or so. James just moved his site to Astro and was just blown away by it. And I think some of it just from that content perspective, because it has Markdown and MDX support built into it. But 
to answer your question, Pablo, you can bring your own front end. So if you want to use React on it, you can use React or Vue or Svelte. You can even, not that you would want to do this, but you can even have React, Svelte, and Vue components all running side by side, uh, yeah. which looks gross, but it's quite an accomplishment. It's awesome. Brad, have you messed with Astro at all? I skipped on Astro and jumped on the remix train. I think at the end of the day, though, I think what it's coming down to is we're moving towards less JavaScript on the client and getting back to the traditional mm, client crazy. server model. And it just feels simpler. I've got this blog post coming out that basically just gushes and says, this just feels so much better. You don't have to just like mm. loading states and Ajax calls and everything is happening on the client and you're managing so much. And now yeah. it's just like, no, nah, dude, just give me the HTML from the server. We're all good. And I think a lot of these new frameworks are like doing that first and it feels really good, really simple, really easy. Yeah, it's a nice, smooth experience. So other than speed, were there any other factors that sold you on Astro? Speed, simplicity. It didn't seem like a large learning curve since it was like essentially looking pretty similar to HTML or even like they have like a little top part for you to write JavaScript. I don't know what that part is called, but that looked familiar. So it just it was just like simple for me to catch on to. And I thought by default, no JavaScript, right? If you include one of those top pieces like you were talking about that is automatically sent down. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly how I understand this work as well. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about daily.dev. First, I think we all recognize how hard it is to stay up to date with the latest and greatest within the tech community. But there are resources like daily.dev that provide a community-based feed of the best developer news, helping you stay current. Daily.dev aggregates hundreds of sources every few minutes and creates a personalized feed just for you according to your interests. So whether that's web dev, data science, or Elixir, anything you might be interested in, it has content for you. There is a web version of the product if you want to see exactly what the feed looks like. Otherwise, just go over to daily.dev and there's a link directly on the homepage to install their extension within your browser. From there, anytime you want to load a new tab, you'll see the news feed. James and I both have it installed and use it to stay current ourselves and so should you. So go check it out at daily.dev. Special thanks to daily.dev for being a Compressed FM sponsor. There's one more. We kind of touched on this earlier, but I just wanted to answer Rakesh's question. Any good way to learn Node.js? Is learning Nest.js framework a good start? I don't have experience with Nest.js, mm -hmm. but front-end masters, level-up tutorials. We were talking about just even jumping into open source is a great way to kind of work through some of the stuff with Node. I would say there's three major like Node.js web app frameworks. You got Express.js, which is like the OG. You've got Nest and Fastify. I would say Express is probably the most universal if you want to pick one. Fastify is probably the most performant, and I've never used Nest, so I don't really know where that falls on that scale. I think Express is probably a really safe bet. When I started web development, I essentially built Express myself. I like learned how to listen using just Node.js for HD, incoming HTTP requests. I wrote like a little router layer that says like, if this is the endpoint, go run this handler over here. And by building that yourself, you're like, oh, I get it. it you just write the logic that mm -hmm. sends the incoming request based on the URL over to the handler. And then you kind of get a good understanding of like what the point of these frameworks are. Yeah. That's awesome. That sounds kind of like if you have ever done one of Kent's testing 
workshops. So he has one posted in front of masters that we talked about earlier. And at the beginning, he has you basically create your own test runner. And then he goes and talks about testing. But through doing that, you learn how those test runners work. That just sounds so complicated to me <laughs> to be able to write your own test runner. But Everything starts neat. complicated. And then you break, I don't know, it's probably just looking through files with endings, importing the specific things out of them and like mm-hmm. running it. Like, then you realize, well, it's not that bad. You've got the ability to import functions. So then you just run them. I, you know, it's crazy how like the impossible starts that way. And then you just work your way towards it. So Rizzo, let me ask you another question. And this one's kind of put you on the spot. So if you <laughs> need a minute to think about it, what about the future of technology and just like what you're doing gets you the most excited? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think overall, I just get excited about teaching people how to use things to enable themselves more or to empower themselves more. Yeah. I guess I'm getting a little excited by like AI and machine learning a bit. Like what I'm seeing of like the places it can go. Just like Copilot, there's other products coming out with AI programming tools. And I think I'm excited to see the direction that takes and like hopefully it can like introduce more accessibility improvements for people. I'm excited to see if like they take it that way like if you can do like voiceover to an ai or something like that and have it type out like your code for you that's like what i'm envisioning that one day will happen (laughs) i don't think we're too far away so yeah yeah have you guys used descript at all yeah i use descript okay it's awesome yeah it is so descript is an editor that we use to edit the podcast i've also been using it to do a first pass on any video content that I create, but you can either record directly into Descript or you can upload a file. It will create a transcript of what you created. And then it's almost like editing a Word document. As soon as you edit that, then your file is updated. But there's a crazy part in there, and this is why I brought it up because you were talking about recording your voice, is that you can do a thing called overdub where it will have you read maybe two or three pages worth of content. And from that, you can actually type something out and then it will convert that into your voice. And some of it's crazy (laughs) how all that works. Yeah. So we've, or I've used it before. I actually don't have James's voice recorded, so I haven't (laughs) done anything posing as James. But for myself, if I misspoken in a podcast, I've overdubbed my voice because I don't want to necessarily pull up my microphone and record everything. And it's kind of crazy if I just listen to it, how seamless a lot of that sounds. Wow, I never used the overdub feature. I didn't know that's how it worked. All I've been doing is if I keep saying the word, I'll remove the filler word. (laughs) (laughs) I do that too. too. Oh my God. What about you, Brad? Is there anything that you're excited about? I really do think it's just the shift back towards simplicity in web Mm. development. It just feels so good, like mostly writing HTML now instead of just all of the javascript mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that's it you write the forms you submit the forms you and you handle the action like i don't know the client server model is a lot simpler than i ever thought it was and i like shout out to remix for kind of like showing us that again you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah i think that was I remember who was talking about it. Maybe it was Scott Slinsky that was just saying, like, why do we abstract all of these like 
bloaters and handlers on top of things when really the web API is so good and it will handle all of that for you. Well, let's transition to the next segment of the show. And so in this segment, we will generally pick something that we like and plug something that we've been working on. So does somebody want to go first? I was going to pick Astro. We already talked about Oh, awesome. No, that's a great <laughs> pick. That's a great pick. Very cool. Astro is something I like. I'm excited to get a chance to use it some more as well. And then what was the second question? Something you plug. Where can people find you or oh. what's something you want to draw attention to? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Black Girl Bites. I'm always on Twitter, like all the time. I'm like addicted. Or you can also look at my blog post at deb.to slash Black Girl Bites. I read a lot of blog posts on there as well about various topics, whether it's open source or GitHub pages or just DevRel in general, too. And that's it. I would say those are the two main places. Cool. Brad? I'm sorry, everybody I'm in podcast land you can't see this but i'm showing it i got a one wheel for my birthday that is awesome that's so cool this thing is the coolest thing ever i already have over a hundred miles on it i ride it like almost every day it's so much fun it feels like you're snowboarding down the street that is awesome um lots of fun haven't wiped out yet highly highly recommend getting one of these things fred do you have a plug First and foremost, I want to plug my YouTube channel. I'm getting so close to a thousand subscribers. You're so close. I know. I noticed that the other day. YouTube.com slash Brad Give me a subscribe there. I need to make more videos. 939. Yeah. But secondarily, I want to say, if you like me on compressed, let the internet know. <laughs> if you like me as a James Quick stand-in, let the internet know. It's just, well, there's multiple reasons here. We are talking to Brad about being a more permanent person but also you need to let james know that you enjoy brad filling in i'm sure that will (laughs) (laughs) make james feel good cool so i'm gonna pick a tv show and since we brought back the 90s early 2000s material i'm gonna be a stereotypical millennial so one of the shows that i watched my younger years that I've just been binging on and I absolutely love is the new adventures of Superman with Lois and Clark. It has Dean Kane and Terry Hatcher in it. I just absolutely love it. (laughs) To me, it goes back to this just nostalgic feel of television where, you know, you have a problem per episode, you solve it and everybody's happy and just has some overall fun story arcs. So I'll include a link to that, but it's on HBO Max. Nice. So you really going to enjoy Bring it. back the 2000s. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like such an old person being like, back in my day, <laughs> the glory day. The other day, my niece was like, you were born in the 1900s? Um, I'm like, no, I mean, I guess. my kids have said that too and we also watch bluey which is a fantastic show yes my kids love it we love it but the last episode in the series that or the season that just dropped is called fairy tale and he tells a fairy tale about a place far far away a long time ago in the 80s. <laughs> so some of the way that he talks about the 80s is just very nostalgic for me. So the other day when I told my kids back in the olden days and they said, you mean in the 80s? <laughs> I <was> like, yes. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, man. Perfect. So for my 
plug, actually, since I mentioned it earlier, I'll go ahead and plug this as well. But if you want to check out learnwithredwood.com, I'm reworking a lot of the copy on that page, but that's one of the new things that I've been putting together to teach people full stack developments. I think Redwood is a great way to learn full stack. And we talked a lot about Node. There are a lot of questions around that. So feel free to enter your email address and you'll get notified when we start releasing content, which actually should be pretty soon. Before we just totally wrap things up, I did see a question come through that I wanted to highlight. Pablo asked, I want to ask Rizelle if she can talk more about her project of teaching to communities and how you started doing that. I think that's an excellent question. Yeah, that is a good question. For G-Code, how I started doing that is the this, it wasn't my idea. Someone else had an idea. They saw that like women of color between the ages of 18 through 25 were both like unhoused or underhoused and then also didn't get that like software engineering experience or education. So she like reached out to me and was like, hey, can we collaborate on this? I'm not necessarily technical. And I was like, yeah, sure. Because I've experienced homelessness in the past and I have a software engineering background. So it was a perfect fit. So it kind of got thrown into it. But if you wanted to start your own community too, it's go ahead and like create a discord or go ahead and start talking to other people on Twitter or go ahead and start blogging. Like your community doesn't have to be like in, in necessarily the formal sense. It can just be like an online community that you chat with every now and then. Yeah. Like community is probably just the best way to get into software coding open source, anything in general, because if you're just too intimidated to like jump straight into the process of learning, of contributing, like it's much easier to just like be in conversation with a group of people and you feel like much more inclined to like put yourself out there, ask a question, bring up a topic. And next thing you know, you're like in it talking about it and you're like, I can do this, you know? Yeah, I agree. And a lot of times people want to like always start their own communities, but there's existing communities that you can join that probably could use your interaction or support or help or whatever. Yeah, that's something I'm always divided on. Like, I have my own Discord, and there's not a lot of activity there. That's really just a home for, like, people if they want to ask me questions about my videos or my open source libraries. It's like, you can come here. But yeah, there's, like, way better communities out there to get more targeted help. And I think that's the thing. Like, maybe you should build a community instead of around a personality or, you know, a person. You build a community around a product, an idea, an area. That way it's like a lot more targeted where people know what to expect from this. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's great too. I think one of the things that James has done really well with the Learn, Build, Teach Discord is creating a general community. And the nice Mm -hmm. thing about that is he has a team of moderators that can step in and flag different things. It's that entire responsibility doesn't fall on him to do everything. Brad, did you find something else or do you want to highlight? It was a really good question and it was broad, but I loved it. I was like, what are the uses of JavaScript? Mm, That is a great question. Uh, Roselle, do you want to take a stab at it? Yeah, I guess I could try. (laughs) It is very broad. I think JavaScript can be used for a lot of things and maybe people that aren't too like familiar with web development or javascript may not know i know i talked to one guy before and he was like oh you're a javascript developer i thought you knew like c plus plus or something like no you could do so much like you can do machine learning with tensorflow.js you can do back-end development front-end development i don't know why my mind is blanking but i feel like you can do a lot with javascript 
I think JavaScript is a super powered language, mostly because you can do everything with it. JavaScript is the only programming language. Uh, okay, I'm going to get blasted for this. It's not the only <laughs> programming language that runs in the browser. Okay, right? The browser supports three languages. CSS runs in the browser, right? That's HTML, CSS, <laughs> and JavaScript. It's like that's going to make some people mad. But the, the only logic-based ones? <laughs> yeah. It's special because it can run in the browser. So like that's what makes it a flower child. In addition to that, it runs on the server. So now you can learn one language that runs everywhere. And now let's say you want to use Node.js to run it. You can install that on a Raspberry Pi, a server as small as that, right? So you can now have applications for JavaScript everywhere. And I think that's why it's a super powered language. It can run your web app. It can implement machine learning. It can do stuff on a website. Yeah. And so it's the one to learn. Even mobile apps, right? I kind of forgot about mobile apps, but that's another one. That's true. We got a couple of jabs in the chat. <laughs> Anything can be done with programming language can be done with JavaScript, except writing type safe code. <laughs> that's hysterical. Uh, so thanks, Anthony, for that one. If you've heard of TypeScript, that's one of the reasons why people lean on TypeScript is to make JavaScript type safe. And it's not that TypeScript is another language. It basically just supercharges your JavaScript so that you get that type safety that Anthony's poking at. And then Eric commented, JS is the most accessible programming language for people around the world. So it's pretty great that it has all of that inside it. But yeah, cool. Well, I know we're about at time and I want to be respectful, but I appreciate everybody hanging out in the chat. Rizelle, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've had some great conversations. I appreciate your perspective and Brad, my wonderful co-host. So we will be back here next Friday, same time, same place, and hanging out in James's house <laughs> without him. So for now, that's all we got.